children, parents, slaves, and masters. This is a bit different from most of the rest of Ephesians, isn't it? And uh, Ashley's already given us a great uh, introduction to what's happening at the the latter end of this book. But let's just try and put it into perspective again. Uh, Look at this and just see where it is, where this comes up in the the whole of the book. We've said several times in the course of this series that Ephesians divides into two bits quite neatly. Chapters 1 to 3 are talking about what the truth actually is. What is it that Christians actually believe? And having done that, as in many of his other letters he does, Paul says, okay, so if that stuff is true, this is what you've got to do about it. The second half of the book, chapters 4 to 6, is about how you live it out. And if you look at that section, yeah, we've, we've said this before, but it's worth reminding ourselves of it, you see the way that chapters 4 to 6 break down. Are, first of all, it starts talking about the church and the importance of being together. And the spiritual gifts that God has given to the church so that we can be a whole, whole new body. Uh, we, can, we, we, we can be members of one another. And having said that, he then has a section about our personal lives and says, look, this is the way you ought to be. Don't lie. Uh, don't be deceitful. Uh, be kind and compassionate to one another. In your own personal life, reflect the values that we've been speaking about uh, that we get from the Lord Jesus and his life in us. And then there's a whole section in chapter 5 about how you do this successfully. Things like living in love, uh, living in the light, filled with the Spirit. This is how you apply those principles to your lives. Then he gives us three examples of situations in life that can be real flashpoints. There's a situation of marriage, husband and wife. And Paul's writing this at a time when more marriages are breaking down in the Roman Empire than ever before. And as you hear the news from Rome, you find that the aristocrats, high-profile people, are living an interesting kind of life. It's like like Hollywood in the early 20th century, I guess. And uh, the example that's being set is not brilliant. So marriage is an important flashpoint area. Another one is the family. And the third one is the world of work. There were lots of slaves around in those days. In fact, something like a quarter of the empire was probably enslaved, which means in a place like Ephesus, where you've got 250,000 people living, something like 60,000 would be slaves. And uh, just a few years before Paul wrote, uh, there was a pr- proposal to the Roman Senate that slaves should have to wear a special uniform so that people would know who they were speaking to. This is a slave and not a free man. And so you could treat them according to their status. And the proposal was vetoed and turned down because Cato said, we suddenly thought, if all of these slaves can recognize one another and see how many of them there are, we're not safe anymore. (laughs) And so because of the number of slaves that were around, the, the situation of masters and slaves was another important area. So Paul talks about these three areas, and then, as Ashley's uh, uh, told us already, he goes on to this final bit of the whole armour of God. If you're going to live out these things, these flashpoint areas and the other areas of your life, then you need to have the whole armour of God to protect your heart and your mind and your head and your spirit and every other part of you so that you can stand right through to the end of your life or until Jesus comes back. So, obviously, the bit where we are is right here. (laughs) And we've done marriage already. We now have the other two bits to talk about. The two examples Paul gives of flashpoint areas. Marriage, you remember, we spoke about uh, three things at the end of chapter 5. First of all, what wives have to do. Then what husbands have to do. And also, what marriage should look like. Those are the three things that Paul tries to cover in those verses there. But we've done that. So now we go on to children and parents. This is a, a girl who fascinates me. 
Uh, this picture is taken on the beach in Vancouver when she was just 24. Her name was Shulith Firestone. Uh, she came from a Jewish family that uh, uh, came from a long line of brilliant people back in Russia and in Germany, but they'd, uh, they'd got out and gone to uh, America and now uh, they'd changed the name from Feuerstein to Firestone. And Shulith Firestone grew up in an Orthodox Jewish environment. Her mother was not very decisive or, 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 or didn't do much in the family. Uh, her father made all the decisions. Now, her father had been a secular Jew as he grew up. But somewhere in his teens, he'd started to study for himself, and he'd become an orthodox convert. And so he ruled his household with a rod of iron, just like new converts often are. He was super keen. He had six children, and Shulamith was the second of them. And most of his children fell out with him, but the special flashpoint in the family was between Shuli and her dad. Her dad wanted her to do everything just according to the book. And in an Orthodox Jewish household, it meant that as a girl, you didn't count for very much. So, uh, for instance, she was told she had to make her brother's bed every day. And when she said, why do I have to do that? And he never does anything for himself. She was told, it's because you're a girl, shut up. And so Sheila Firestone is remembered now for what she did the year after that picture was taken, which is that she wrote one of the seminal texts that became one of the founding documents of radical feminism. It was called The Dialectic of Sex. And she said, we not only need to make women equal with men, we need to break down the family. Because she says in the book, family structure is the source of psychological, economic, and political oppression. Now, she argued for it very brilliantly, but it's pretty obvious that everything she writes <laughs> comes from her own painful family background. She and her father, uh, according to the rest of the family, just never got on. And uh, there was one conversation her sister remembered when they just had, ended up in a shouting match on the stairs, and their father said, one of these days I'll kill you! And Shuli got shot back at him straight away. No one, because I'll kill you first! And that was a kind of relationship that went on in their household. Eventually, she moved out. She went to university. She had a brilliant career at university, and she started living life by herself, had very little contact with her father in future. Uh, she did contact some of her, her, her siblings, though, because her sister Leah, who was two years younger, had been thrown out of the family home at age 17 because during... Um, uh, Shabbat, uh, Sabbath, she had uh, broken the law by reading a book in bed with a, a torch. And when she was discovered, her father said, right, that's it, you're out of here. That was the kind of family it was. And no wonder, growing up in that environment, that Shulamith Firesmith felt the whole family was a bad idea. Well, she went on to found various radical groups uh, in New York and in Chicago, and she became one of the most talked about uh, radical feminists in America. But the trouble was, in those early days of the feminist movement, there were lots of people like her who were coming out of their families and trying to do something different, trying to establish a new kind of setup where they could compensate for the lack of good families around them by being sisters of one another. And the sisterhood could be a very, very nasty place to be. Um, uh, one of her friends... Uh, later wrote, we and the rest of America had never seen anything like us before. Cracked, belligerent, misguided, and strangers to each other, radical feminists were giants on the earth. Since the mother-daughter relationship had been painful and humiliating for many of us, they called each other sisters. 
But as Ty Grace Atkinson quoted, sisterhood is powerful. We can kill sisters. Although we knew that this was true, most feminists denied that it was really true. And uh, the, the, this girl, Phyllis Schechter, I think, wrote a book called Woman's Inhumanity to Woman. And many years later, Shuli and I were talking, and she said, if only you had written Women's Inhumanity to Women long ago, it might have saved our movement. If we'd realised that you cannot replace the family with other kinds of relationship and expect the same strong bonds between people, the same accountability, the same unconditional affection, if we'd only realised that, it might have saved the movement from going downhill. And uh, later on, uh, as a, a, a columnist in the, the, the New Yorker magazine uh, recounted a couple of years ago, the, there, there was a terrible toll in the radical feminist movement as lives fell apart. Last fall, she says, last autumn, as I interviewed New York's founding radical feminists, the stories of social defeat mounted, painful solitude, poverty, infirmity, mental illness, and even homelessness. In the 1998 essay, Kate lamented the lengthening list of her sisters who had disappeared to struggle alone in makeshift oblivion or vanished into asylums and have yet to return to tell the tale. And uh, she ends up, we hadn't helped each other much. We haven't been able to build solidly enough to have created community or safety. And tragically, that's what happened to Shilmuth Firestone. She uh, eventually, uh, when her family decided to move to Israel, cut herself off from them completely. And she wrote a letter to her mother, which is chillingly cold, accuses her mother of all sorts of things and says, be grateful that you will not have the madness of this daughter as well to atone for. Here, hereby, I dissolve my ties of blood. And from there on in, she and her mother and father had nothing to do with one another. But she just went downhill from there as well. Especially four years later, when her father died. Because that hit her particularly hard. She'd hated her father. She'd rebelled against her father. She'd reacted against him all her life. And yet, he was a kind of a rock that she needed somewhere along the line. And one of her, uh, her sisters said, it was when her father died that Shuli went into psychosis. She lost that ballast he somehow provided. And without a family, and without friends she felt she could really rely on, she began to understand just how much she'd missed when she wrote the book that we've just seen, The Dialectic of Sex, she sent a copy to her younger sister, Leah, the one who was thrown out of home, who'd stuck by her throughout everything that had happened. And she said, uh, as an inscription at the start of the book, to Leah, who turned out to be the only real sister. <laughs> and sadly, she died after several episodes of psychosis, schizophrenia, all sorts of things. When Shulamith's Firestone bo Firestone's body was found late last August, it says, in her studio apartment on the fifth floor of a tenement walk-up on East 10th Street, she'd been dead for some days. She was 67, battled schizophrenia for decades, surviving on public assistance. There was no food in the apartment. One theory is that Firestone starved, though no autopsy was conducted by preference of her orthodox Jewish family. Right to the end, the family that she'd held against were in charge, but she starved to death because nobody was looking after her. And that's one of the things about families, isn't it? They're built into our lives. We can't get away from them. 
And that's because family is what God is all about too. I remember David Postman's preaching saying, you know, the Christian religion is the only religion in the world where God is a family. And that's true. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in a perfect, eternal relationship of love. The only God that is a family. And earlier in Ephesians, you remember, chapter 3 and verse 15 says uh, that Paul bows his knee before the Father from whom every family on, in heaven and on earth takes its name. In other words, familyhood comes from God. And it's part of what he's created in us that reflects his nature too. So it's against that background that Paul talks to children and parents and says it's dead important that we get the attitude to families right. So let's talk first then about what he has to say to children. And the first most obvious word that sticks out in verse 1 is children obey. Now this is what the Bible says to young people. If you think about it, the book of Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, other wisdom books that are written to young people, ask young people to choose. Don't forget your mother's instruction. Remember what your father taught you. But you have to do it now. It's not a case of just obeying it blindly. It's a case of thinking it, thinking, yep, that makes sense, and making the right decisions for yourself. So as you grow up, you grow into a stage where you are standing on your own feet and making your own decisions. But for children, the word is obey. Clearly, the uh, fact that children are addressed here is that uh, in the churches around Ephesus where this letter was read, the children would be present. So we're talking about children who are able to understand this much. Children who are under their parents' authority still, in the Roman world that meant roughly from 7 to 16, that was the age during which they were educated, and children who at least know a little bit about the Bible because they're reminded of one of the, the, the commandments, aren't they? So clearly they'd heard it, they'd been taught it. So we're talking about children who are in a Christian family and children who are still under the authority of their parents and they're told, you must obey. But it's not just obey everything your parents say. It says obey in the law. <laughs> now that's important, isn't it? Because if you're not in a Christian family, you still have to obey your parents. But there may be things that your parents tell you to do that run against your commitment to Jesus. John Stott, who writes very helpfully about this passage, we've quoted him a few times on the reasons, he says, you know, if you're a Christian teenager and your parents tell you, uh, your non-Christian parents tell you, no, you can't be um, baptised yet. Go along with it. Obey them. If they tell you, no, you can't go to church this Sunday because we're going to visit your Auntie Maud. Go along with it. Obey them. But if they tell you, no, you cannot be a Christian, we refuse to let you think about this thing, you must stop praying, you must not have anything to do with this God of yours any longer, disobey them. <laughs> because your primary lo lo loyalty is to God. And when your parents tell you to do something that runs right against your allegiance to the Lord Jesus, that's when you stop obeying them. You obey them in the Lord. As far as you can honour and respect that authority, you respect it. Now, Paul gives two reasons for this. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, first of all, because this is right. <clears throat> children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And he uses the word dikaios, which just means it's natural, it's right, it's built into the order of things. He's not even arguing about the Bible here. He's just saying that's what happens, isn't it? Children obey their parents. And if you look across the world, in culture after culture, you'll see that that is what happens. It's right. And when there have been experiments in societies that have tried to train children to react against their parents, 
It's never worked, and we always think it's unnatural. Think, for instance, of the uh, time in, in Nazi Germany or, or Mao's China, when children were encouraged to inform on their parents and denounce them so that they'd be sent to prison. There's something that, that just feels completely, absolutely wrong about that, doesn't it? Because you expect children, as they grow up in a family, to honour and respect the people who are taking care of them uh, from, from day one. Um, if you think about the way uh, in, in, in which at other periods of history, uh, children being separated from their, their, their parents and, and turned into a political group that will, will threaten their parents very well, that kind of thing is wrong. Children are supposed to obey their parents because they need somebody to give them that guidance to start with. But he doesn't just say that. He says it's right. It's built into nature. It's what everybody expects in cults all over the world. But also it's biblical. Because he quotes uh, Exodus chapter 20 and the, the, the Ten Commandments. He says, uh, look at the first commandment with a promise. Honour your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And he says, this is what God says. If you honour your father and mother, it's more likely to go well with you and you will enjoy long life on the earth. Now, obviously, he's not saying, if you honour your father and mother, you will never get run over by a bus. <laughs> you will never catch a deadly disease and die. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, in the normal run of things, well, accidents can happen at any time, but in the normal run of things, if you live a life where your family relationships are harmonious and smooth and go in the way that God wants a family to be, that people nourish and enrich one another's lives and they behave towards one another, well, your life will naturally be extended. If, on the other hand, you live in a situation of open warfare, you live in a firestone-type household, you know, in which parent is at war with child and child is at war with parent, and you're using up your energies in bitterness and hatred against one another in a way that you were never supposed to, then you're wearing out your own resources and you're not going to live for as long as you would live normally. So he's saying this is the first commandment with a promise. Now, that's an interesting phrase. What does that actually mean? Because if you look at the list of ten commandments, you could say that number two has got a promise attached to it as well, but none of the others do. And so, how do you work this out? How, does it, how is it the first commandment with a promise? Well, um, it seems to, to, to me that what's being said here is, is that this is the first commandment in the sense that it's a primary commandment for, for young people. As soon as you're born as a child, this one kicks in. And this is the first thing you learn. Let's face it, if you've worked with very young children, they know from the start where they are in relation to mummy and daddy. They may not have heard about God to start with. Or if they have heard about him, they take it on board a little bit more slowly. But mummy and daddy are a very present reality from the very start. And so the first commandment of God's that you hit is this one about obeying your parents, honouring your father and mother. And the word protos can mean that, not just first in the sense of before, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and that kind of thing, but most primary, most important and so for you children, this is the most important one, he says, and it comes with a promise. If you do this, your days will be longer in the land. Now, none of the other commandments actually have a promise like that. So perhaps what he means by this phrase is this. This is the primary commandment, and it actually brings results. God promises results from it. Some of the commandments in the list don't, stop, don't bear false witness. 
Don't make graven images. Don't have too much of an explanation of what will happen if you do that. Uh, I mean, you could say, you know, don't steal and then uh, people won't steal from you or something like that. But no promise attached to those things. This is the one that does bring a penis. If you live in this way, then your life will be lengthened. So children, obey your parents in the Lord. Um, it's biblical and it's right. It doesn't mean you never disagree with them, but it does mean that you put yourself under them. It's interesting. The word obey means to hear underneath. It's from two uh, Greek words that when you put them together, the first bit is under and the next bit is here. And it's here from a position of being under the authority of. So you listen to your parents as if you had to do something about what they say. That's different from the word hupotasso, which is used about the husband's wife submitting. Because that's a word that leaves it open that you might hear your husband say something or your wife say something and give an instruction to which you say, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't think that's right. But children obeying their parents is that strong word, here, under. So, how about parents? Well, parents in the, the Roman world had awesome power, especially the father. In fact, when you were born as a baby in a Roman family, the baby was laid on the floor in front of you, and you had to walk up to it and look at it. And if, as a father, you picked it up, that meant you were taking on responsibility for that child until adulthood. You were welcoming him or her into the family, and you were saying that you would be responsible for protecting and guarding and bringing up the child. If, on the other hand, you looked at the child and just walked away, that was it. The child was no longer recognised as part of the family. All kinds of things could happen to it. It could be given away. It could be sold into slavery. More likely, it could be exposed. Because sometimes unwanted babies, sometimes, quite often, unwanted babies were just left in the Roman forum for anybody to pick up or put on the hills at night. And one of the things about the early Christians, because they really believed in family, was that they used to go around looking for the unwanted babies and taking them home. And uh, uh, <coughs> some of the growth of the Christian church came through those unwanted babies being brought home to Christian families and being brought up in a Christian environment. The Christians knew that if they didn't get to these babies first, either the slavers would or the owners of brothels would and they'd be brought up in, in, in misery, whatever else happened to them. So the Christians were keen to get the, the, the unwanted children. But the father had incredible roles. Seneca was the uh, tutor of uh, the uh, Emperor Nero. He was a, a great philosopher, a tremendously fair-minded man. But he said this, We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge a knife into sickly cattle, lest they taint the herd. Children who are born weakly and deformed... We drown. Ooh, that's horrible, isn't it? But then that's the way that uh, children were treated. They were a benefit to the family or they were nothing. If you wanted them, you could have them as an asset if you produced them. If you didn't want them, then they were you to dispose of. And so, uh, the Apostle Paul has some uh, instructions for parents too. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, says verse 4. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So he starts, Father. Well, actually, the word he uses can mean fathers, but it can be used more generally as well. Just as the Greek word adelphoi, which is often translated brothers, really means brothers and sisters. So the word pateres, which is used here, means parents. 
So he's talking particularly to fathers because they had all the authority in a family in Ephesus in those days. But he's not forgetting mothers either. And so these instructions are for parents, not just fathers. What does he say to them? First of all, don't exasperate your children. Now, this word exasperate is another interesting... I'm sorry, it's all about Greek words tonight, but they're interesting words. And this one particularly, it, it, if you translate it literally, it means to shout at close up, <laughs> um, to provoke from close range. And what that means is you are so close to your family... You see so much of them. You understand how they think. You can really push their buttons, can't you? You know just what to say to wind them up. You can really annoy them. Fathers, do not do that to your children. Parents, don't wind your children up. You can drive them into absolute... Say, don't do it. That's what he's saying here. Don't exasperate your children. But instead, he says, nourish them. Um... Uh, instead, bring them up in the training instruction of the Lord. That phrase, bring them up, means to feed completely. <laughs> to feed until they don't need anything more. And it's a word that refers to bringing up the child in a way that nourishes and takes care of it and, and looks after its every need. So don't exasperate them. Don't use them as a punch bag for your bad temper or your irritation. Don't take your bad feelings out on them. Instead, do whatever you can to nourish them completely, to give them everything they need to live a full and confident adult life. Um, don't exasperate children. Andrew Lincoln from the University of Gloucestershire has written a pretty good commentary, actually, on, on Ephesians. And he says about exasperation this. This involves avoiding attitudes, words, and actions which would drive a child to angry exasperation or resentment and thus rules out, let's get this list, excessively severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation, and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. As I read down that list, I think back to the way I acted with my three daughters. I think, hmm, I wonder if I fell into those traps very often. Because you can, can't you? So Paul is just as straight with parents as he is with children. Both sides need to work on their act and make it happen. But anyway, he says the positive thing is to nourish them, to bring them up in the right way. Now, how do you do that? He says, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or the training and instruction of the Lord, as it says in the NIV. What does that mean? Well, again, sorry about this, but two Greek words. The one word is paideia, and the other word is nuthesia, training and instruction. What's the difference between the two of them? Well, paideia talks about training somebody's behaviour. It's the same word that's used in that description of, of the Bible, you know, in 1 Timothy, uh, where it says that uh, the word of God is profitable for, for, um, for teaching, uh, for correction, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness. Training, teaching of the right habits, instilling the right disciplines into you, showing the way to live in a balanced way. So that's the first thing, training a child's behavior. Yeah. Teaching it, not just to wash behind the ears and, and its teeth every night, but more importantly, how to relate to other people, thoughtfully, sensitively, and carefully. 
how to operate in the world in, in a way that's, that's going to be beneficial to everybody. That every aspect of that training, how to put God into the right place in your life, that is the training that, 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 that children need. But it's not just training their behavior, because children are not just robots. They're not just you know, inanimate objects that you program to operate in a certain way. They have minds as well. And that's where Nuthesia comes in. Nuthesia talks about forming the mind. You not just teach them by constant repetition of the same thing, how to do things, what they should be doing, and so on. You also train their mind so that they understand why they're doing it. And that's the other part of bringing up a child. Not just making them do the right things, but making them see why they're important to do. And so Paul says, that's your job. If you are a parent, you're responsible for both the behavior of your child training it, making sure it happens right, and you're responsible for filling their mind with the right things too, giving them the right perspective on life. And you are responsible for that as long as they stay with you. When I was a youth worker, I used to get scandalized by the parents who would say, well, you know, she used to come to church, but she's, well, she's 12 years old now, and we can't really force her any longer. What do you think? I don't think that at all. You know? Training goes on as long as it needs to go on. But it needs to be accompanied with the mind bit as well. This is why we think it's important. This is why. This is what God says in And so on and so forth. Well, let's move to the second bit because I've, I've, I've said enough about children and parents probably. Uh, he then moves on to slaves and owners. What do we know about slaves? This is Walter Leidel, who's an Austrian who works at universities in America. And he's done a lot of work on the classical world and especially slavery within it. And he says, Roman slavery is one of the scandals of history. He says, during the millennium, from the emergence of the Roman Empire to its eventual decline, at least 100 million people, and possibly many more, were seized or sold as slaves throughout the Mediterranean and its hinterlands. In terms of duration and sheer numbers, this process dwarfs both the transatlantic slave trade of the European powers and the Arabic slave trade in the Indian Ocean. He says, look at slavery anywhere else in history, and it's just not on the same scale. He says, you know, there's no way now that we can quantify, that we can assess, that we can count up just how much human suffering came from this arrangement. It's one of the shames of the world. And slaves in the Roman Empire could be treated well. It was possible for them to give their freedom at a certain stage. It was possible for them to rise quite a bit in society. You might just remember that when we spoke about the Book of Acts last year, we met Felix, the procurator, the greedy guy, who wanted to keep Paul in prison until Paul coughed up some money. And so for two years he delayed and kept him in jail in Caesarea. We noticed at the time that Felix and his twin brother were born as slaves. But they were fortunate enough to be in the household of Mark Antony one of the most distinguished houses in Rome. And so when they were given their freedom as teenagers, they just rose and rose and rose in society. Now, they can never be senators. You couldn't be an ex-slave and rise to the Rome Senate. But you could get pretty high up before you hit the glass ceiling. And that's what happened to them. And so Felix, sitting in judgment on Paul, who was a free man of the Roman Empire, was, in fact, himself an ex-slave. However, slaves weren't always treated that way. There was a writer called Varro, uh, about a hundred years before Paul came along, who wrote uh, lots of books, actually. Not all of them survived, but three of his books were manuals on agriculture and how to run a farm. And he said that when you have a farm, on your farm, <laughs> there'll be three different kinds of implements. 
And uh, these three kinds of implements you need to master if you're going to run a farm properly. One of them are the mute implements, like carts and spades and things like that. You know, they, they can't really talk back to you. They don't say too much. You can't have a conversation with a, a, a trowel or something like that. So you have some mute implements. You've also got inarticulate implements, tools that you use that can't talk. They just go moo from time to time. And that's animals. And the third kind of implement, tool, that you have on your farm are the articulate ones. And they, he said, are slaves. Hmm. But, oh, just tools. You don't treat any of them as if they're living, breathing people, because they're not really. They're just there for you to use. And in his daily Bible study on, on Ephesians, William Barclay piles stories on top of one another about how the Romans sometimes treated their slaves. Let's get this. Augustus crucified a slave because he killed a pet quail. Vidius Pollio, who was a pretty cruel man, mind you, fled a slave still living to the savage lampreys in his fish pond because he dropped and broke a crystal goblet. Juvenal who was a Roman satirist, who was uh, just a few years after Paul. He was being born while Paul was, was writing this, this letter. But uh, Juvenal grew up to write satires about the way the Romans behaved. And Juvenal tells of the master who delights in the sound of a cruel flogging, thinking it's sweeter than any siren song. Or the master who summons a torturer and brands the slave because a couple of towels are lost. <laughs> Life as a slave was pretty unpredictable and pretty nasty. So, if you're a Christian slave, how did you react? Paul says, stay in your job. Don't start a revolt. But the way you do your job is super important. By the way, that's a jug uh, which is made in the shape of a slave. The slave is obviously in the slave market. He's got a little label around his, his, his neck that shows that he's for sale. He's chained. And so, um, you know, he was being used as a jug. Which slaves are everywhere, so we can make a jug out of them as well. How do you do your job? Well, Paul says... Uh, three different things, doesn't he? The first thing is obedience. Yes, it's the same word that's used for children. To hear under. Obey your masters. You might not like what they tell you to do. You might think it's unjust, but that's the situation in, you're in. So obey them. And obey them too, he says, with respect. Obey your earthly masters with respect. So it's not just that you do what they say, go and do this, slave. Mm, all right, fair enough, okay, I'm on my way. It's not that way. You respect them. You give them the very best you can give. And the other way that's used here is, and fear. So um, part of fear is, is, is part of respect is, is, is fear. Um, now, the actual words that are used in Greek are fear and trembling. I might think, whoa, this means the slaves have got to be scared of the master all the time. Not necessarily. Because fear and trembling doesn't mean you're scared of somebody all the time. It just means that you're putting your very best into a job, but you're not absolutely sure that you'll do it really right unless you concentrate. Um, you see the same phrase in, in, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, you see, where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Exactly the same words that are used here. And Paul is not saying you've got to be scared of God as you work out your own salvation. Who knows, he could hit you with a thunderbolt at any moment. Of course it's not saying that. Because we know we're in the hands of a loving God who wants the best for us. But fear and trembling, well, it's the kind of thing you might feel if uh, you were a football player. You'd grown up through the academy of a major club. You'd been sent out on loan to a few other places. But now today, 
You're playing in the first team in front of your home fans for the very first time. And as you go out onto the pitch, you're worried. <laughs> not because you don't feel you can play, not because you can't remember the laws of the game, but simply because you want to do your very, very best. Or you're a member of a band that's been playing around the local scene, and now you've got the chance to open for some major stars who are in the local theatre. And the, the theatre's full of people, the biggest audience you've ever played, played to in your life. As you go out there on the stage, you know the songs you're going to play. You've practised them for months. You've played them all over the place. This is just another concert gig, but it's a very, very special one. And as you go out, you're shaking with your fear and trembling. Why? Because you really want to do your best. Now that's what Paul is saying in Philippians 3. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Give it your very best shot. And so he's saying the same here to the slaves. Obey your masters with a respect that involves fear and trembling. So there's a third element though, and that's also sincerity. With sincerity of heart, he says, just as you would obey Christ. Sincerity means you're not just putting on a show for them. You're doing what... You really believe from the inside out. You really want the very, very best for your master, however unjust and cruel he might be. You still give it your very best shot, and you're not making it up. You're really trying hard. The word uh, that's used here for sincerity is a word that means unfoldedness, which is strange, isn't it? It's a word that you would use for a sheet or a pillow or a towel that's not been folded up. Because the idea is the more folds you've got in something, the more easy it is to conceal something inside the folds. But when you've got something that's just one single sheet, you know, unfolded, then you can see exactly what you're dealing with. And so when you're working for your master, Paul's saying, what you see should be what they get. They see the real you being sincere, doing the very best you can. Obedience, respect, and sincerity. And the other thing he's saying to them is, well, why would you do it that way? And uh, I think there are four reasons that he gives for that. First of all, because your identity is important. First of all, you are the slave of Jesus. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ. You do it in the places where nobody would notice too. You don't skip the job when nobody's watching what you're up to. I remember when then I was working in Swindon as a youth worker, uh, we got hold of the old Methodist Central Hall on loan to use as a youth centre, right in the centre of the town. A brilliant thing to have. Nobody wanted it at that particular point. When the property company who owned it said, yeah, you can have it, take it and do some stuff with young people. And I remember uh, doing some work to make that place fit for a purpose so we could move in and do stuff there. And what impressed me was that this building from the early 1900s had been so carefully put together. There was lovely wood panelling and graining all over the place. And there was a staircase running up from the ground floor to the balcony. And I remember going in behind the staircase and looking right down into the corner, the darkest corner where you couldn't see what was going on at all, shining a light on it and finding that the same graining. The same care had gone into those dark corners that nobody was ever going to see for 70 years <laughs> that had gone into the public open bits. That's what's being talked about here. You are a slave, not just of whoever happens to own you, you are Jesus' slave. So what you do, you do in the way that he would approve of. He sees even the dark bits in the corners, so make sure that the job you do is the very best. Second, there's your objective. 
Your objective, he says, is to do the will of God. Serve wholeheartedly as if you, no, sorry, like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Because your identity is that you belong to Jesus. And your objective is not just to get your master his tea, or to take his son to school, or to prepare a bath for your mistress, or whatever. Your objective is to do the will of God. And the more you do to promote peace and harmony and well-being and happiness in the household where you work, the more you are actually fulfilling the will of God for his world. And the third thing is your audience. <laughs> because set wholeheartedly, says verse 7, as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Jesus is watching. He's seeing you. So remember that. Remember that it's him you're serving. It's not just human beings. And your real audience is not your master and his friends out there. It's him up there. And the more he sees of what you're doing and doing right, the more you delight his heart. Your master may not be pleased with you. But if the master praises, what are men? And the fourth thing is your expectation. The reward that will come as a result. Now, you may know that Paul wrote Ephesians at the same time that he wrote Colossians. And in Colossians 3, you find the same sort of stuff that you find in Ephesians 6, the same sort of instructions. It's longer in Ephesians, which suggests that he wrote Colossians first and amplified it a little bit for the big letter to Ephesus. But uh, in both, he makes exactly the same point. Servants, slaves, remember that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. And that's for you who are slaves as well as free people. It's easy to say as a slave, oh, well, I can't do much. You know, I'm just a slave. I, you know, I just do what they tell me, and that's all there is to it. So I, I can't do any real good in the world. No, you can do things, even within the condition where you are. And the master will see you, and the master will reward you. So do it as someone who's straining for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. In Greek, it's much short. It's just same things, do. <laughs> so same things there. The same respect. The same concentration on getting it right. The same concern for people who are just slaves. Agricultural tools. Nothing very important. You can do whatever you like with them. You still treat them in the same way because you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So Paul says, it's daft to threaten them, isn't it? I will do such and such to you, because you've got a master too. And your master is also their master. So you really hold no power over them in the ultimate scheme of things. Don't threaten them with all sorts of stuff. Just try to treat them uh, in the way that Jesus treats you. And do for them what they do for you. Well, we ought to end with a practical example. And this guy has got to be one of the... The, the best examples in the 20th century of somebody who took those principles and applied them to life. This is John Lang, one of the biggest and wealthiest and most successful builders in Britain in the 20th century. And as you may know, somebody who was born into a little church in the north of England, very like Great Parks in the Christian Brethren tradition. And John Lang is remembered as one of the most ethical, caring businessmen that Britain has ever seen. In 1909, business was going badly. He was working for his father. He was on the point of taking over the firm. And it just seemed that nobody wanted houses built anymore. 
In fact, the firm had made its money uh, through building industrial buildings in the north that nobody wanted anymore, mills, things like that, and so they were on their uppers. And John Lang one day went out to the hills and sat staring out into the sea and just praying and saying, God, what do you want me to do? My elderly parents will be looking to me to support them in their declining years, and the business is going to pot. What do I do? And that afternoon, and with God uh, and the hills and the piece of paper, he wrote down what he called his program for life. And he decided he was going to try to get the best out of life. He wanted to enjoy it. He wanted to live it to the full. He wanted to live it for God. And he wanted to behave towards other people in the way that God said he should. And so he built a program for his own life, which he kept uh, for the rest of his life and followed for the rest of his life on the basis of what he thought God wanted him to do. He got married the next year and his wife, Lady Lang, eventually, um, was shown the program for life. He said, listen, we're not going to get married unless you agree to this. <laughs> and she agreed, so they got married and started having children. But 1920, for the first time, he had a building firm in which all employees could become shareholders. They could actually be part of the success of the firm. That was unknown in the building industry in Britain. And people started saying, what's going on here? And the business started to grow and to flourish. In 1922, he gave 40% of his shareholding to a, a trust which he set up. And the John Lang family of trusts now is one of the most generous uh, trusts still giving away loads and loads of money in Britain. But 40% of what he owned in 1922 went into the trust so it could bless other people, not just his family. 1926, he was doing so well, he was able to move his headquarters down to London and start doing things on a national scale. In the 1930s, still thinking about his employees, he started to give them free uh, holidays with pay. And he guaranteed to them a minimum working week of 24 hours, which in the building industry was just revolutionary. It gave his workers security, it gave them freedom. There's a great story about how once he went to the building site early in the morning and found a man operating a digger uh, who didn't seem to have his mind on the job. And uh, Lang went up to him and said, so you don't seem to be uh, quite yourself this morning, what's the problem? And he said, well, he said, uh, I'm sorry, sir, but uh, you know, I start work at seven in the morning, my wife is ill, uh, she can't get out of bed at the moment, and I've got two kids to feed and, and, and sort out and get ready for school before I can come down here. And that's likely to be the case for at least a couple of weeks. And Lang said, oh yeah, where do you live? And uh, he told him, and Lang just disappeared. Came back a couple of hours later and said to the man, okay, on you go, you've got two weeks off, uh, full pay, you don't need to turn up at all, just go home and take care of your wife. And when he got home, he found that Lang had already been there to check that the story was true. And uh, Lang had not only talked to his wife kindly, but had left a five-pound note on the table before he went. And that was a lot of money in those days. And Lang is, the, the story of Lang is full of, of stories like that. He was a, an employer who cared about his workers. 1959, he was knighted. 1962, his firm built Coventry Cathedral. And although by now he was retired, he insisted on being there, although he had to hold onto a chair all the time because uh, he wasn't able to stand up very well. And in 1978, he died. And get this, when he died... And you put together the total value of the possessions he lived on. He was worth £371. Millions and millions of pounds had passed through his hands. And he'd given it all away. That's the kind of thing that Paul's speaking about in Ephesians 6. We don't see much of it. Now, you might not be a slave. You might not be a millionaire business person. <laughs> but the same principles apply to us. Children and parents. Slaves and masters. 
Those principles show the rest of the world that there is something different and special and real and hopeful about us. This is how you live it out. Back to you, Ashley.